This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Today we are talking to Mark McGurl about disintermediation. Mark, can I ask you to introduce yourself? Sure. I am a professor of English at Stanford University. I'm the author of three books, the most recent of which is on Amazon's impact on contemporary literary culture. That's why I got interested in the idea of disintermediation. So tell us, what the heck is disintermediation. It is such a strange word. I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, what? Uh, It's got too many prefixes. It's almost a double negative, but not quite. So it's a very strange word, but it emerged in the business world. And what it essentially means is getting rid of the middleman. That's really all it means. And I think it became particularly salient with the rise of the internet, Mm. which seemed to offer tons of opportunities for so-called disintermediation, even though, of course, the internet is itself a medium. Mm. So it's a form of mediation. That's what's sort of tricky about it. But in some ways, you can sort of understand how you could conceive of connecting to somebody on the internet as leaving out somebody else, especially selling things on the internet directly. Okay. Because of course, getting rid of the middleman is a path to profitability. Mm -hmm. And that became a dominant theme, of course, with the rise of internet e-commerce for the past you know, 20 or 25 years. So people were asking themselves, okay, what business can I disintermediate? Uh, um, in other words, okay. move the profits that are being made by some middleman to me as a perhaps a direct seller of whatever it is. And in the case of Amazon, it's a direct seller of goods from Amazon. Mm-hmm. So they're cutting out the brick and mortar person. Yep. But more importantly to me, they have a whole huge self-publishing apparatus called Kindle Direct Publishing. In 2018, 1.8 million works were self-published with an ISBN number, most of them via this medium KDP. And in that case, a writer of a book is publishing their work via KDP, and they're cutting out Knopf, 
Random House. Mm. So the middlemen there are traditional publishers. Okay. What's left behind, of course, is Amazon as the new mediator. But to a lot of people, this looks because the barriers are so low to publication. In mm -hmm. fact, there are no barriers except mm -hmm. the ability to upload your book yeah. to the KDB site. This looks like disintermediation. Okay, so I think you're getting us to the second question here, which is how do I use disintermediation? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's just a funny version of the question. I think, I mean, the most practical way is to like, okay, well, how can I use the internet? Um, <laughs> yeah, fair. fair. Um, is, is, is one version of that question? Like, yeah. But it's sort of systematically asking oneself, okay, I have this supercharged medium. Mm -hmm. The medium that brings together all media. Yeah. It has vast reach. So I at least have the technical possibility of connecting with people so-called directly mm -hmm. in a way that I wouldn't have 25 years ago. Using disintermediation really reduces to that question. How can I make use of an incredible, a, a really revolutionary new medium to connect with people? Yeah. And I think that is very much the utopian dream of the early internet in the 90s. Yes. Everything is going to be open and we're going to yep. be able to make these extraordinary connections that we couldn't before. The internet is like a medium that is no medium. Yeah. You know, in poor theory, yes. Because, mm. yes. of course, it is a medium. Yeah. And you're, totally, you're so right to refer back to the 90s moment of utopian dreams for the internet. Mm. This idea that if we could get rid of the impediments to direct communication... Surely we'll all understand each other and love each other. Yeah. I would argue that something like the opposite has happened. Disintermediation <laughs> has as much produced conflict mm. as it has reduced it. But specific to the world of literature, which is what I really most know about, the utopian moment for self-publishing was around 2013, 14, 15, 16, where people started to realize the power of this, why, you mean I can just format and upload a book to Amazon and it's available for anyone to buy on the Amazon site? It seemed too good to be true. And a lot of writers who had had trouble getting traction with traditional publishers, presses, yeah. for them, this was an incredible dream come true. And some of them became very successful. Mm -hmm. And I think now in 2021, a few years later, I think the picture looks a lot more complicated. Because I think there's been a general realization that the mere technical fact of the ability to publish one's work is not even half the problem of getting readers of your work. Mm -hmm. That said, once insofar as you do find a reader, you're in a relatively disintermediated relation to that reader. It just turns out that it's a lot of work, actually, even if you can find the reader, it's a lot of work to sustain that relationship to your readers mm. for a self-published writer. So it can be pretty tricky. Yeah. So I'm curious what the role of Amazon is in contrast to a traditional publisher like Knopf or, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, Amazon is a platform, whereas Knopf is a press within a larger structure of a global corporate conglomerate publisher. Yeah. The role of Amazon is really in some ways quite passive. Once the self-publishing apparatus is constructed and online, they're relatively passive about what actually happens on their platform. Mm -hmm. There are no editors. So if you're a self-published writer, you're your own editor. Mm -hmm. uh, you are your own book cover designer. You are your own copy editor. Most crucially, you're your own marketer. And so all of those functions that are absorbed by the traditional publisher now fall to you as somebody who's publishing directly. 
that's the main difference. And that's part of why I think now in 2021, the utopian days of self-publishing are over because people have realized, oh my God, that's a lot of work, actually. Yeah. Not only do I have to write the books, but I also have to market them and edit them and design them and all of these sort of things suddenly fall to you. Whereas with a traditional publisher, really all you're asked to do as an author is write the book. Yeah. They more or less take it from there. Yeah. It's funny because for so long, it's like, oh, if I could only publish this. Mm. But then now you can, anyone can publish anything. Mm. Like you could do it. You could publish your book 15 minutes from now if you have it on your hard drive listener. Just do it. Okay. But like getting anyone to read it is a different <laughs> matter. Should people do it? What do you think? <laughs> you know, it's one of those things. I mean, in a certain mood, I think surely not. We're drowning <laughs> in content and people should have a better sense of the quality of what they're uploading. Mm -hmm. There's the worry that the good stuff gets drowned out by the bad. Mm. But then in other moods, I'm like, no, that's actually, you know, that's a very typical worry, but I'm actually not sure that that's actually literally true. Mm. Uh, once you get down to how people actually find their way to things. So Amazon, it has millions of products, right? So the first thing it has to do is give you ways to not just sit there panicking about all your options as a shopper. Mm -hmm. And that's why they have this very carefully you know, cultivated review system. So if, if some product has all five stars, you know, you cut to the chase and buy it rather than examining the mm -hmm. 57 other products that you could buy. And then just on and on and on, they have all these mechanisms, the algorithm, which brings things that might be interesting to you in front of your eyeballs, mm. all of those sort of conspire to reduce the complexity of the situation. Let's put it that way. And if I'm in a good mood, I think, you know, it mostly serves to get two people more or less what they're looking for. And so if I'm in a good mood, I don't worry so much about the vast ocean of content that's out there getting in the way, because I do think people find their way to what they want anyway. But then, of course, then I wake up and I'm in a dark mood. I'm like, oh, God, we're all drowning in stuff. And nobody can find the good stuff because they have to get through 1.8 million versions of the bad. Even though I just wrote a book on it, I, I remain ambivalent. And the ambivalence is threaded throughout the book. This is in some ways an amazing system and in other ways sort of disturbing in the over plenitude that it produces. Did you consider self-publishing your book? I did. Yeah. I did actually. Yeah, cuz I thought that, you know, you know, I've already written two books through traditional means and I was like, well, you know, I could and my last book was sort of a thing. And so I was like, you know, I could get away with it. <laughs> but in the end, when I really thought seriously through all of what it would mean to do so, I decided to go with a publisher for this book that I admire tremendously, Verso, a publisher with a very sort of specific thematic interest in leftist thought. When I very much liked the idea of being associated with this press, they make beautiful objects. Their books are beautiful. And sure enough, my book is beautiful. And so I appreciated the idea yeah. of doing it. But then the reality set in and I was like, you know, I'm actually going to go in this direction because uh, that, that's just sort of what my instincts tell me to do. Yeah. In the largest global sense, Amazon is an engine of consumerism. Yeah. And consumerism is a serious problem for a, a warming planet, right? And so just the ideology of continual optimization of your material life. Mm -hmm. Finally, bottom line, insofar as Amazon supports that, it has to be fundamentally questioned. 
That's the bottom line. And then there it's aggressive relations to other businesses. It's monopolistic practices. There are all sorts of reasons to criticize Amazon, mm -hmm. but I didn't want to, you know, not acknowledge that this opportunity to present your work to the world is an interesting wrinkle in literary history and yeah. not one that's entirely negative. The yeah. populist in me wants to appreciate it, wants to think, oh, I'm glad that more people have a shot because I'm well aware of how the whole sort of network, the prestige network works and it works to exclude lots of people who never get their shot. And so, you know, I'm populist enough to admire the system, but also realistic enough to know that it's a corporate populism. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and to that extent is tied to other phenomena that I'm just not going to be able to get behind. And then tied finally to sort of deep concerns about the future of the climate uh, in a world where we're constantly encouraged to consume more and more and more. Yeah. Okay. Well, on that note, <laughs> let me ask you my final question. Uh-huh. <laughs> How will disintermediation save the world? <laughs> I'm not expecting it to, to be okay, honest. Fair. Because the road we've traveled from disintermediation as an unalloyed good, mm. as the road to utopia, a utopia of common understanding, I mean, everyone getting what they want, has been substantially refuted in the last couple decades of history. Mm. That said, if one wants to be hopeful and utopian, yeah. it's true that this medium does remain there, waiting for people to get together and pursue common good through common effort. Mm. And so, you know, if I wanted to insist that actually there is some save the world dimension of disintermediation, it would be the possibilities for political organizing and interest group organizing that it presents. Now, that said, oftentimes I see people with political interests exactly the opposite of mine organizing on the internet. And so one has to sort of acknowledge that, that it's yeah. a value neutral opportunity. And so it's not necessarily going to save anything. It might ruin things. Nonetheless, there it is as a platform for people to connect together without the heavy-handed interposition of a middleman. What fascinates me about disintermediation mm. is that it turns out to be like a version from the business world of the sort of the key concept at the heart of the internet itself. I so hope that it has beneficial effects. Thank you so much for coming on High Theory. It was my pleasure. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonic Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams and Sharonic Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.